Hello and welcome to What the Pocaccia with me, Nikki Webster. And me, Bettina Campolucci Bordi. Our podcast is all about sharing our passion for the things we eat, good food, responsibly sourced and sustainable, which is why we are so pleased that our lovely sponsor is Islands Chocolate. Islands Chocolate is a small British business that brings you the finest and tastiest multi-purpose chocolate directly from the Caribbean. You can see it all for yourself on the website, which is islandschocolate.com. And if you want to take your chocolate eating to a whole new level, then check out their Islands Chocolate Spotify playlists, tailored to the mood of each bar, taking you on a journey to tropical paradise while you indulge in some seriously fruity cocoa flavours. I love that. And they've kindly given us an exclusive discount just for you, a lovely podcast listeners. If you enter the code ISLANDSWTF at the checkout to get 15% off everything from islandschocolate.com. So let's meet this week's guest. We are so excited to have Asma Khan with us, uh, joining us on our podcast. Asma Khan, you are an Indian-born British chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. You own Darjeeling Express restaurant in London's Common Garden, which I've been to. And you were profiled on the sixth season of the documentary series Chef's Table, which is one of my favourite episodes ever. We'll chat about that a little bit later. Darjeeling Express, your restaurant started as a dinner pop-up for 12 guests at home, serving Indian food lovingly cooked from family recipes. The food in Darjeeling is served the way Indian food is meant to be eaten. Platters of dishes boasting texture and flavours which complement each other, encouraging you to gather and share in the style of the traditional Dawat, I hope I'm saying that right, which means feast. You have an all-women crew of former housewives that now are amazing chefs who run the kitchens at Darjeeling Express and have been doing so from day one, which we'll also chat about. I believe that you're shooting your book, which is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And thank you for your kind uh, introduction. Yes, I am. I'm in a photo shoot. Uh, We've been shooting since morning, uh, my second cookbook. How exciting. <laughs> and there, it's an all-female crew. We have like eight people outside. And uh, it's really, really exciting because the thing is that this is also the first time I know that the recipe works because someone who doesn't know my food, I know, I've just handed the recipe to them. Wow. And it was all very emotional because just before I've come to speak to you, they did the chicken biryani uh, mm-hmm. that uh, my mother would make for me when... I got into trouble and she wanted to kind of let me know that it's okay and that she still loves me. And this is a very kind of family chicken biryani. And I wrote the recipe and then it was like bated breath. Everybody else was like, oh, wow, it looks so pretty. I just want to know how it tasted because I had to write down a recipe that I've only heard orally. I was really moving. So anyway, I'm all yours now. So have they have they tested the chicken biryani already? Is that one done? Yeah, or Yes, yep. yes, yes, it's done and it looked beautiful. And I'm really so emotional because I know that, you know, I, I have now left this recipe for everyone to enjoy. It's not just my private treat that my mother made for me. And, you know, I think that you should just always share things that, you know, you have. And in some ways, I'm gifting everyone this biryani recipe. Oh, that's lovely. That's amazing. So, Asma, as Bettina says, so lovely to have you here today. If anyone doesn't know you um, already... How would you describe yourself? I think I would first describe myself as an activist. Mm-hmm. I'm a disruptor. I'm on the fringes of hospitality. I'm very political. For me, food is always about politics. And I happen to be a restaurateur. Uh, but for me, 
it is always all about, you know, claiming back my right to be on the stage, that we need to find spaces for women, for women of color, and that there should be more diversity. So I've, if someone doesn't know who I am, this is what I am. I use everything that I do to talk about justice and fairness. That's amazing. I think what I love about you is it's almost like you use food for a force for good in so many areas. We've had a very turbulent, interesting past year, <laughs> haven't we? Yes. With, with everything that's happened. And um, the first time I visited your restaurant was in the previous location, and I believe that you're in Covent Garden now. And how has this last year impacted your business? Financially, it's been devastating, beyond belief, crippling. It's been very hard because for a lot of us, you know, we had to pay rent. Uh, we've still had our costs. And, you know, the government support has, unlike, you know, like Germany or France, where the support has gone directly to the business as a percentage of their turnover, we have had our staff supported, for which I'm very grateful, through the furlough system. Mm -hmm. But businesses on their own have not had any kind of kind of decent support. So, you know, there's not been a lot of help. But for me personally, it's been a year where everything changed. And it has been absolutely incredible, the opportunity that was created because of the chaos and the difficulties from the pandemic it's a bit like what happens in a chessboard, you know, when everything is knocked down, you get a chance to reset the pieces. Mm. And that's what happened with the pandemic, that this allowed someone like me to move to somewhere like Covent Garden, which would not have been possible before the pandemic. That's incredible. And Nikki and I were just talking about that. We'd love to, to come and visit and try some of your amazing food. Tell us a little bit more about the background of the type of food that you serve at Darjeeling. And it's very sort of enveloped in from, from generation to generation. And as you mentioned in the beginning with the chicken biryani being your mum's recipe, um, the food being cooked by an all-female crew. What's the ethos and background of, of the type of food that you serve? I think because of the way I started from my own home, I had 12 people around my dining table serving them from my family plates. And it is as if people who come to my restaurant have come to my home. And that is something that is very important for me, that I, you know, the entire menu is designed like, you know, what do I feel like eating? And, you know, what goes well with something? I'm not trying to impress or, you know, dazzle or be unique in any way. I'm just cooking food that I love, cooking food that is part of my heritage. You know, just like the biryani, in a way to share my joy. Because I feel it's wonderful, it's fabulous. And I know that, you know, unless you have the good fortune to be invited to an Indian home, mm. you will never get a chance to eat these dishes. So I, I, it excites me to introduce to people, you know, and every night in the other place where you've come to in Soho, it's very small, but we did 200 covers a day. That's amazing. I got a chance to tell 200 people what it is to be, you know, Indian housewife, you know, our normal everyday food. Because the food that you get in Indian restaurants, even in India, is not what you get at home. Anyone who knows anyone who's Indian, Indian aunties will not spend money <laughs> and go to a restaurant in India 
and and you know pay for a dal which she can make at home she said oh, it's, i can make it for 2 rupees at home you know and this is actually i mean i know i'm mimicking an indian auntie but it's true <laughs> so indian even indian restaurant food in india was different it was things that were tandoori you know your house would bloody catch fire if you had a tandoor in your house so you know no one had tandoor in their house it's also extremely it's not economical yeah you set fire to a huge big fat thing with all this coal and then you make four chapatis and you think okay my story is over you know you need to keep that fire going because you know that's how a tandoor works so you know our food in restaurants was always different food in families was always very sacred and private in some ways you know you didn't invite everyone to your dining table so it is really unique this is what is so different about dashi express i'm giving you food that you may never get a chance to eat and when you come into my restaurant you sit down and yes you will pay a bill but i'm going to treat you as if you came to my home because those are the dishes i'm cooking i'm cooking the dishes from my family oh i love that i mean i've had um, the great pleasure of spending many many months traveling around india um of course in eating restaurants and cafes and spending time in people's houses as, as well and you know also working there and uh, yeah oh my goodness there's you know there's such a difference between that sort of lovingly home cooked food and the restaurant but I, I mean i love it all obviously but i think it's amazing yeah no but it's all good it's all good but this is different it's just different home cooked food there is an essence in it which is you know a lot of patience and love goes into cooking at home in my culture so i mean just just let's delve into that a little bit more um just where do you think your passion for food and and you said it's you know your east sea yourself very much as an activist but the passion for food where do you think that came from it was possibly the difficulties i faced when i moved to this country mm-hmm. it's it's hard to imagine and you know most of you may not have been born 30 years ago but you know 30 years ago there was no mobile there was no internet there was no computer i wrote letters to my parents i felt completely disconnected uh, abandoned uh, unloved and unwanted i i moved to this country and felt it was almost like a bereavement i felt i lost everything when i moved here and i realized that food was the one way in which for that moment i went home so when i was cooking i almost felt the presence of my mother next to me that this is so emotional for me because it was so hard You know nowadays when people tell me you know oh I miss home you can skype your dog in Delhi you know? <laughs> it's not it's not a big deal i mean i know yes the pandemic has been tough and what's happening in india is awful but you know it's been a year but usually in normal circumstances you can go home you can talk to everybody yeah you're all connected up but that wasn't the case 30 years ago so the passion and the desire to cook was not i mean not just to feed myself i mean look at my size one would think that's all i want to do but no it wasn't about feeding it wasn't about feeding myself i wanted to see someone else eat food i cooked because i realized you know it healed me i felt i could breathe i felt i could live when i was able to eat the food of my childhood food of my home and irrespective of what background the other person came from they may not have been indian they may not have even been to india but i was giving them my most precious gift which was something i gave my time to cook you know every ingredient in a dish you can buy back mm. not your time yeah so when you cook for someone you're giving something so precious invaluable and you know as unique as your fingerprints you know as you cook that dish 
is part of you. It's an extension of you. This is my passion and my love to cook comes not from, you know, wanting to have fame and glory and definitely no money because <laughs> I can tell you that yeah. there's very little money in hospitality and restaurant business before pandemic. Now, let's not even talk about it. But it's really this excitement to feed mm. and to watch someone's eyes when they eat. It kind of was like a fire inside me. I wanted to feed more and more people. And then I, you know, I figured out I could call people to my home. I had no money for a restaurant. And then, of course, long story, I ended up you know, having a restaurant. And now I have an even bigger restaurant. But it's still that same instinct to stand by the side of the door and watch someone cook. And then to eat that food and, you know, my team of people, I watch them cook things and I watch people being, you know, and I love serving people. I clean their tables. I serve people. It's that excitement to give something to them that I know my team has cooked. In hospitality, I have no idea why other people are doing it. Mm. But I couldn't have worked these long hours for no money, not eating a single meal with my kids, never seeing sunshine when you're kind of all the time cooking in a kitchen. Yeah. You have to want to do it for reasons that are beyond, you know, uh, glory and fame and whatever. I have no idea. But for me personally, it really is about just sharing things that I know are so beautiful. And I just want other people to have it. I think you've summed that up so beautifully. And you can definitely tell when you come and have a meal, you're very much around, very much talking to people and very much present in your space, which is amazing, considering that you've been doing this for quite a while. You mentioned that when you came to the UK, you very much felt alone and you cooked so that you could feel more at home. Was cooking a skill that you already knew how to do or was that something that you developed? I didn't know how to cook when I moved to this country. I had never imagined that I would leave uh, India. I always imagined that I would have, you know, marriage arranged by my parents. It's like everybody else. You know, the fact that nobody wanted to marry me uh, was not part of my equation. And I ended up going to college because, you know, usually girls in my family are married at 18. At 18, no one wanted to marry me. I had to go to college. I thank God, miraculously, Mm. everyone found a boy who was willing to marry me. So in that time that I met him and I moved to Cambridge was three months. Oh, wow. In three months, I arranged my entire (laughs) wedding with my mother. We fed on my wedding day, 5,000 people were invited. So you can imagine the kind of logistical drama that was happening and all my clothes and, you know, 10,000 relatives, you know, different times asking me for different things. So I had no time. I didn't know how to cook. I asked my husband, you know, I don't know how to cook. He was saying, oh, it's fine. I don't believe in gender roles. I think men and women are equal. I will feed you. I thought this is so cool. <laughs> this guy is going to feed me. And, you know, yeah. and my husband's very, very liberal, very left wing. I thought this is brilliant. You know, I hit the jackpot. This guy's <laughs> going to look after me and feed me. Yeah. Didn't tell me. He only knows one thing. It was so bad what he cooked. And I moved to this country and then I got a shock because he made that for me every day. And I had to eat that every day. What was what it? What was it? Uh, <laughs> it was really, really, really bad chicken curry. He only knew one type. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then rice like you can't imagine. He didn't know how to make rice. It was like glue. Then the sad thing is that he left me to eat this on my own. So he couldn't even see my suffering. Because he ate every meal in college. Because that was the, the year that he was graduate tutor. 
and admissions tutor at the Cambridge College where he was a don. Yeah. And he had to go into college. I understand that, you know, he had to go to eat with the students. But then he ate like really fancy food in, in his college, served to him. I was like eating this every day. Oh, that's so sad. And one shouldn't say this, you know, you should be grateful for the food you have. But, you know, honestly, after a while, it got like really too much for me. <laughs> I, and I, I you know, and I just told my mother, you know, when I went home for the first time, I said, I'm not going to go back. She was like, you know, you can't do this. And, you know, is he bad? You know, I said, no, just the food is bad. She said, you can't just not go back because the food is bad. You're going to keep, <laughs> and everyone panicked because they thought I genuinely was not going to go back, you know, and that's a, like a major scandal in, in a family like mine, which is traditional, conservative. Yeah. You know, you don't do this. 30 years ago, it was unheard of for anyone to leave their husband because they're a bad cook. You know, no one would have believed that story. So my mother was like, you know, you've got to learn how to cook. So actually, I think I knew how to cook. It's just I hadn't done it because I learned really quickly and I don't think I'm that smart. I used to hang around the kitchen all the time before I got married. So I'd seen the processes, but the most important thing, I knew the aromas. I knew the rhythm. Mm. You know, our food, traditional food is cooked in a beat and a rhythm. And you stand in a kitchen completely immersed in these aromas of spices and things and conversations that people are having. And no one is giving, like, you know, measure this and measure that. No one is measuring anything. It's like, you know, do you think it's done? Does it look right? And now I remember, I used to look at it. You know, is the onion looking right? Yes. Is this, you know, is, does the aroma of the cumin... Is it just right, the nuttiness? Yes, it is. Take it off the heat. Mm -hmm. So all these conversations were in me. When I started cooking, I remembered everything. And, you know, I learned to cook really fast. And I have to say, very well. And I could replicate all my family dishes. Amazing. Uh, exactly the way that it was. And I didn't, I didn't even struggle to cook. So it was quite a relief for me. My husband was completely, like, shocked when I came back. <laughs> What's happened? Yeah, yeah, and he's never made chicken curry again. I told him, this is it. You rest now. <laughs> rest of your life, I will feed you. You just don't do anything. So maybe it was the sort of desperate situation of eating your husband's curry that really sort of started everything. I would loathe to give him any credit <laughs> for, 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 for my success. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, I mean, I have succeeded despite him. But yeah, this it was the trigger. Yes. I think that it was if, a little push. No, no, a big push. I mean, and the thing is that, you know, if he had been a good cook and had fed me all those feasts and tawats and, you know, spoiled me, I'd be, you know, be barrister right now. But I would have been very wealthy, I think, as a lawyer. Uh, I wouldn't have been in this position, but I'm, I would have been a different person. Strange things happen for different reasons. And, you know, I, this was my destiny. And through twists and turns and, Tears and hardship and frustration and loneliness and sense of not belonging. I have got to a stage where not only do I feel I belong to this country, I've been able to set up a restaurant and give that sense of belonging to so many other women who work with me, but also to people who just come into my restaurant. They've, they all say that, you know, when many of them feel that they've come home when they come to eat in my restaurant. So the homecoming has been... You know, not just mine, but everybody's. And what, what an amazing gift to give to people. So just out of interest, how long was it between your, you, you know, your mum reminding you or teaching you how to cook and then you starting to cook for other people? One year. Very long year. Yeah. One year. Wow. Uh, it was, when I look back in the Quran, you know, or in everywhere else, you read descriptions of hell, of burning fire, of, you know, boiling fat. It's Cambridge in winter is hell. Cambridge, <laughs> you know, cycling, learning to cycle with the wind cutting yeah. through you. 
in shreds. The cold and it's so damp. You feel so frozen. And I used to look at the birds flying. I used to think, you know, how lucky they are. They can just fly. And the river froze the winter I was there. And I'd never in my life seen trees without leaves. And I remember <laughs> running my hand down the bark of a tree, stripped of everything beautiful. I didn't think the tree would have a spring. I didn't think I'd ever have a spring. In the stark, barren, the backs of King's College in Cambridge, I remember yeah. feeling the sense of emptiness and hollow, cold and damp and wet. It was miserable. It was horrible. I mean, I think that, you know, actually, British people also feel that. <laughs> it's like the desolation, the hopelessness. You feel that, you know, this terrible weather is never actually going to change. <laughs> That's why everyone's so obsessed with talking about the weather because it feels so hopeless in the winter. Yeah, you think spring will never come. Sunshine makes a big difference. You sort of, it lifts everyone's moods. You can sort of feel a vibrancy of everyone sort of going upwards as soon as there's streaks of sunshine outside. Yeah, I suppose so, yes. Um, We've talked about your restaurant and your food and Nikki and I are both very passionate about where our food comes from and food sourcing. And I was wondering, is that important to you as well? It's very important for me. I don't make this uh, into a big song and dance and talk about it a lot. But when I'm asked, and I'm thank you for asking about this, uh, I don't fly down any vegetables from Asia or Africa. I'm extremely distressed every time there is a new food fad yes where i agree food is coming <laughs> in from our parts of the world this obsession recent obsession with jackfruit mm. i can tell you that farmers in india are encouraged to get and use genetically modified seeds buy fertilizers grow cash crops for the foreign market as they say it by middlemen who then give them less money because their okra is half a centimeter short. Their family starves because that entire land has been used. They've not risked leaving any place to grow dal or anything or wheat or any staple for the family. Their only income would be what they get when the middleman comes and inspects their crop for export. Mm. And this growing for export is killing our farmers. We have huge numbers of farmers committing suicide in India. And also this excessive use of water. They're growing crops that were never meant to be grown in certain areas. And I will never, ever have anything that is grown in India or Africa for an export market because I know the price the farmer has played. There is no trickle-down effect. The only person making money is the middleman. And to have something on my table in my restaurant that has been trucked out of rural India to an airport wrapped in cling film, flown across the world, then put into a refrigerated van, and then finally to me. The carbon footprint is shocking. So really, I I don't... And it's not that I need to compromise on my menu. I have aloo gobi mutter. I have niramish, which has got pumpkin in it. And I use amazing amounts of potatoes. I love potatoes. All British potatoes, everything that I have on my menu mm. is British as much as it can, organic as much as I can afford. <laughs> and the only place that we go and get, because the weather here is so horrible, uh, is all the herbs and the aubergines yeah. uh, come from Spain or Italy. And that's as far as we go. I think 
restauranters should take a hard look at their menu. Is it really necessary to fly down ingredients out of season? It is our responsibility. If your customer wants to eat out of season asparagus, how bad, too sad, it's not on the menu. We serve food. We tell our stories. But we also have an obligation to pay homage to the land in which we live. Hmm. You need to not strip it of everything for your one moment of glory. I feel really strongly about this. I don't talk too much about this because I know that a lot of Indian restaurants, you know, have okra on their menu mm-hmm. and have jackfruit and people are thinking, you know, I don't, already I rattle enough cages. I don't want to kind of rattle more cages and, you know, upset more people. Rattle them. This is, <laughs> this, this is why you're here. I mean, this should definitely be talked about more. And also within sort of the plant-based vegan space, there's so many products that come out as alternatives and jackfruit being one. Things like mangoes <laughs> and, and... Mangoes? Let's leave mangoes out, okay? Let's leave mangoes out. Let's fly the mangoes. I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah. Mangoes. <laughs> you know, everyone has an exemption. Yep. Yeah, ma- mango. Mango, please. Let's have the mangoes. Because, I mean, I can't... Can we keep the mangoes? Yeah, we, we leave, let the mangoes be. <laughs> but this thing about jackfruit and, you know, and also avocados, you know, looking at another part of the world, there is no justification in my area around the palace and the fortress we see the desert coming closer and closer to us. The drop in the water levels is so acute. Girls from around our villages walk for miles. All the wells are dry, just unconnected. You know, it, this is something that I feel so strongly. I'm not charging for water or sparkling water in my restaurant mm. because I want to know that water can be free. Mm. And we, at the end of the year, will build a well in the area where the girls don't need to walk so much that they can just get water because they spend the whole day going to get water and back. And why is the water level falling? Because people are growing crops for the West. I think it would be really interesting for people to know. We mentioned avocados and jackfruit. Are there any other particular crops that are grown for money that are not sort of the usual crops that you would normally grow? I mean, in my area, uh, which is in Western UP, wheat. Ah, okay. We have a wheat mafia and wheat takes huge amount of water. We traditionally have eaten millet, right? Which is the it's it's also millet is able to sustain the heat for longer. It requires one fourth the amount, so much less water than wheat. But because wheat is a cash crop, it's seen as a more you're a wealthy farmer if you're growing wheat. Mm -hmm. So this is one problem that wheat is grown, but we should be growing bajra and millet and making our bread with that using that flour because it is also a lot of ancient grains. People have stopped growing because they're growing for commercial reasons. Mm. So it's a real hit. And even a small farmer, you know, trying to grow tomatoes and things. We only had in my country, when I left in early 1990, you only got tomatoes or carrots in winter or cauliflower. You never got them. Mm. Now, even in India, people want it all the time. Yeah, We have stopped understanding There are seasons for a reason. You don't have the right to have whatever you want, whenever you want. But it's frightening to see that this disease and malaise of the West, where people feel that they should be able to have anything at any time, Mm. flown in from wherever. Indians are now using their own land and encouraging farmers to grow things that should not be grown, not in that season and not with that amount of water on a land that was not meant and because of commercial pressure, because people have taken loans, farmers, for to buy seeds, to buy fertilizers, mm. they don't do something that is so critical to our farmers. We used to traditionally leave the land fallow 
for one season yeah. to heal. Yeah. Imagine all of us, you know, this kind of break that we take. People go and get, you know, it's a detox, you know. We all understand. Sometimes you need to chill out. You're giving the land space to breathe. They can't do that anymore because they're pumping in all these fertilizers. Nothing else will grow. So they just keep growing and growing and trying to sell, you know, things that don't mature completely because they're not in the right season. It's either too hot or it's too cold. It's, it's fighting against the natural systems, isn't it? Which is just so difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think we could talk about this indefinitely because it's such an incredibly interesting subject. But I think we must also talk about something else, which is super close to your heart. And as you're a huge supporter of educating girls and women, which is just amazing. But we'd just love to hear a little bit more about where that comes from and what you're up to. Well, we have, I mean, I have the uh, Second Daughters uh, Charity, which has now been set up and registered in the UK. And we're using the charity to basically celebrate the birth of girls, but to also encourage parents to send their daughters to school. And the water that I mentioned earlier mm. makes that possible because she's not spending the whole day going to get water and coming back. I'm telling them I'm going to sink a deep tube well, which goes down to the water level next to your village. Mm. Just let your girl get the water for the day and let her go to school. Or everyone should send their daughters to school. When you are very poor, when you have resources that you're scrambling for, in a very tough environment, yes, you'll send your three daughters to go collect water because you need water. It doesn't matter. You, you can keep coming and telling them, send your daughters to school. I am from that soil. I understand. Mm. You cannot just tell them, send your daughters to school. They won't go because they need water. They need to get that because they're going to send their boys because boys are very special. Keep them at home. Mm. Let them be fat and keep feeding them and send them to school. No one bothers about the girls. So send the girl. So I'm trying and I think it's really important. Education is the end goal. Mm. But there are lots of layers that we need to sort out, you know, and there's there's a lot of malnourishment in among girls because girls eat last yeah. and they eat least. Wow. And so obviously they are they're tired, they're weaker, they get sick more often, then they are physically working harder. So we need to have a sea change in the attitude towards girls in poorer rural areas, even in middle class families. So it's this kind of challenges that we face. Education is your key to be free. And reading, I think it's such an incredible thing where you read the story, where you can relate to something, but this is a different culture. This is a different story. But you see someone, you know, the protagonist going through the challenges that you're facing that you have not been able to articulate. And it's empowering to be able to read. It's empowering to know that change can happen, that you are not chained forever to the floor. You do not need to be where you are forever. You can fly. And this is so important. You know, it is something, hmm. you know, I wish I lived forever. I wish I could do so much. I know my time is limited, but I try every day because I know when the sun sets, my one day of my life is over. And this bothers me because in my lifetime, before I die, I want to know that the lives of girls has changed, that girls feel free that they know that they do not have to be in chains their whole life. Wow, amazing. I, I think that's uh, incredible. And Darjeeling, your restaurants, is linked to your charity. So I'm sure that people are going to ask whether there's anything that they can do to help and, and to sponsor your charity. And how, how can we do that? Well, I mean, the thing is, once we reopen, I plan to then actually have something on the menu which will be a second daughter's charity uh, item. 
uh, people, if they would like to order it, it would be something British, sustainable, local. And, you know, I, I would like people to support and then we would use that money to be able to also, I think very importantly, teach young women and mothers how to farm. Because this is the biggest problem that, you know, when decisions are made by men who are not the smartest tool in the box, in some cases, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, where commercial considerations come in, the entire family land is being used to grow okra for a supermarket in the West. They're terrible decisions. Yeah. But, you know, if there's a small vegetable patch where you can grow very simple stuff, you know, you just grow potatoes, you grow, you know, and you grow dal, you know, you, that which is really good for you. At least your family gets fed. But if you don't know how to farm, yeah. you don't know how to get the seeds. So, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done to help women improve their own diet. Because when they feel that they have, they've grown this, then they'll eat it. The problem is when food is allocated in poor homes, girls don't get a lot. Yeah. It really is, you know, I, I, the second daughters is, yes, it is focused on second daughters. I'm a second daughter. But it's really about the marginalization of girls in families, in society, and this is not just something that is in the East. No, not at all. In the West too. Absolutely. You you find women only at certain levels. At the top echelons of power, you will not find women. The voices of women are not. Women are not safe walking on the street. Yeah. We need to really fight back our corner. And every woman has the right to be free, to be safe, and not to be hungry. And feel that they have the right to fulfill their dreams. So it's the East and West both thing. And I'm, you know, I'm from the East, I'm from the West, you know, in my accent, you can hear I'm both. I use the second daughters as a kind of political tool to have a conversation about the rights of, of girls everywhere. But especially, you know, I'm interested in the kind of rights of second daughters who are not often sent to school, mm. who are marginalized. And, you know, we will do that once we open. It's just been so tough, you know, I've been wanting, I was about to do this with Soho and then we closed and yeah it's been tough it's been awful but anyway we're almost out of we it are. We're, we're almost out of it and and which leads me to our next question which is also linked to what you were saying I'm sure there's a lot of things but what would you love to see in the future I would love to see you know more women creating spaces for other women yes this unfortunately happens too much that women reach the top and throw away the ladder yeah I agree. And you will find, you know, that a lot of older women who have made it are very unsympathetic and unsupportive to younger women who are coming through. And I think that there is a time for us to actually talk about these things. That why is it that, you know, it's not just that you're fighting with, you know, a very kind of, you know, misogynist uh, environment with men, you know, being unhelpful and, and picking on you. I'm absolutely upset because I think that in our society we're letting too many powerful women get away with it. Mm. I'll just give you an example from my own industry. Whenever there have been incidents of bullying or misogyny, sexual harassment, racism, not a single female Michelin star chef has spoken up. Mm. Not a single powerful female chef has spoken up. I have always written, I've always called it out. Mm. They closed ranks with the powerful men because Unfortunately, in the West, success is seen in male terms. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to suck it up. And, you know, I, I've suffered through my whole life. I'm not going to make it easy for you. You are going to make it easy for women. We need to stand by other women. And also, too many women who make it also occupy the stage for too long. Mm. And, you know, I'm very conscious of this. You know, I try to encourage more and more women in events. I, you know, name drop. I, I connect people up because... I'm very scared because there's a lot of, especially if you're a woman of color, you know, 
boxes that have been ticked. When you get someone like me on stage, you know, immigrant, you know, Muslim, overweight, fat, middle class, whatever, whatever. I, I tick all these boxes. Then they will not get anyone else. Mm. And I need them to actually look beyond me. Because the problem is that when some people make it, everybody just wants to use them or see them everywhere. They don't go looking for the next asthma. Yeah. And this yeah. is very important. And this is my responsibility. Not yours and not the media, not anyone else. I need to find the people who are coming behind me. I need to move aside. I need to clear the hurdles for them. I want to stand on the side and watch women surpass every achievement of mine. I want to applaud that. This is what all women who get power, who are influential, who can make a difference. It is your duty. Lift women up because that is why you have been given that position of power. You have a duty to help other women. This is what I want to see. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that Nikki and I have had many of these uh, conversations that it's it's so important that women support women. And also there is so much to give and there's so much space that there is enough space for everyone to rise together more than enough rather than trying to sort of push people down to get to the top and I think you've hit it on the nail in terms of women need to support women more it's it's a fact and I think we would be more powerful <laughs> better at what we do and we would have gotten here quicker if we were better at supporting each other and you know hopefully to people listening to this it's um it's something that we need to talk more about, I think, um, for sure. And you've hit it on the spot, I think. Okay, so we're going to move on to our final question, which is rather sad, but um, we ask everyone this. So, Asma, if there is anything, what would you say was the best piece of advice anyone or someone has given you? The best piece of advice is that, you know, don't let other people define who you are. I think that's really important, you know, because people believe and you internalise other people's labeling and other people's descriptions of who you are. You tell the world who you are. That's what you should do. Amazing. Yep. Well said. As everything. <laughs> as everything that you've said. <laughs> I'm feeling super inspired. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're pretty amazing. Um, on that note, we're going to do some quick fire questions. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. So white milk or dark chocolate? Milk. Crisps or chocolate? Chocolate. Butter or olive oil? Butter, butter, butter. Always butter. <laughs> um, avocado or mango? Mango. Ketchup or mayo? Mayo. <laughs> but not with mango. Mayo, not with mango. Yes. <laughs> Cake or pie? I can't choose both. No. You can choose. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Both, both, both. Uh, French fries or cheese toasty? French fries. And finally, choc truffles or chocolate mousse? Chocolate mousse. Mm, great choices. And now I want to have chocolate mousse. Oh my God, I haven't had one for a long time. Oh. I don't know how to bake. I don't know how to make any dessert. So I don't know. I know how to make Indian desserts, but yeah, I have to, I have to buy them from, from shops or sometimes very kind friends. I can coerce them into making it for me. But Indian desserts are good as well. Yeah, but you know, there are like lots of elbow, elbow grease. I, I mean, Western desserts, you just whisk things in and they, they happen and they're so pretty and they come out quickly. Yeah, voila! <laughs> Here's what I made. True, Zoop, true. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Asmus, thank you so, so much for uh, for chatting to us today. It was unbelievably inspiring. And I'm sure that our listeners will, will just be super um, inspired as well. And um, we're very excited also about your new book. Yes, can't wait to see that. We better let you get back to it. Thank you so much. 
Thank you very much for listening to What the Focaccia. I hope you have enjoyed our food conversations and please do have a listen to the rest of the episodes to hear more brilliant stories about everything and anything to do with food. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Islands Chocolate. You'll find their proper hot chocolate in any girl's bakery and you can choose between 65% or 75% cocoa and have a girl's barista make a creamy high flavour hot chocolate for you. Don't forget, you can also get 15% off anything you order from their website, which is islandschocolate.com. Just use the code islandswtf and that's islandswtf at the checkout. And please do give us a five-star rating if you've enjoyed the podcast. It really does help spread the word. And if you want to follow Bettina and myself, you'll find us on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back soon.